You're now listening to a podcast of Revolution Church, located at 1702 6th Street in Portsmouth, Ohio. Revolution meets on Sunday evenings at 6.30 p.m. For more information, visit www.revolutionchurchohio.com or check out our Facebook page. How you doing, Revolution Church? All right. I, I don't use props when I preach. Um, I'm not Stephen Furtick. I don't know why that this is here. Who put this here? Please, stand and be recognized. Who did this? Jim? Jim Bays? I don't know why. Oh, Sebastian did that. <laughs> Katie Reed, ladies and gentlemen. Her children are reckless. Why you would arm your son with a tomahawk is beyond me, but to each his own. I trust I like your parenting style. I appreciate it. Let them, let them make their own mistakes. Um, <laughs> I'm kidding. That, like, legitimately just threw me off. Like, I'm glad that I didn't have any, like, super, like, strong intro thing. Um, anyway, I see a lot of new people here. I saw a bunch of new people last week. Who, who's, is this your second time being here? Chris. Chris never raises his hand for anything, and he did it today. Is this your, if it's your first time here, would you raise your hand? Like, we don't have anything to give you unless you want, a, like, a free Bible. You can take one from the back of those pews. It's nice to you all are here. Genuinely, I'm glad you're here. Uh, so... I was just curious because, again, I, seriously, I, I, I love college season, not just because more people are here, but because I miss you guys so much. And I look forward to getting to know all of you guys, too. This is your first time here. Um, but you, you kind of are, are jumping in on the tail end of a sermon series that we've been in since the beginning of the summer. We're in the book of Acts right now. Um, and what we've been doing is we've been, the name of the sermon series, rather, is called The People of God. And what we've been doing is we've been taking a look at um, the godly examples of the early church, um, like what, what they thought, what they taught, um, what they did, what they believed, um, the places they went, the, the, all that stuff, and, and trying to distill from their godly examples things that we ought to be doing today um, as their successors in the church. Um, but anyway, so just a side note, so this is our last week in Acts. Next week we're going to start something really cool, and I'm excited for you guys to see the graphic because Katie Reed did a great job. Uh, we're doing this thing starting next week for like 30-some weeks. We're going to be looking at Bible stories, right? So I'm really excited for this. Like all the like Old Testament greatest hits, right? Think if it was like a record. Like it's going to be like that. I'm really excited, but that's neither here nor there. I just want to tell you guys that. Uh, but tonight we're in Acts, all right? And, and we're going to be covering this evening one of the strongest statements that the Apostle Paul ever made, in, in, in my opinion, um, uh, apart from his letters. It's one of, one of his strongest statements that he ever made. Um, and in looking at this statement that Paul makes... Um, I want us to see the believer's heart for evangelism. Um, and, and what I mean by evangelism is telling people the gospel. Um, telling people this message that Jesus Christ has been crucified uh, as a substitute for sinners. Um, so that through faith in him they'd be reconciled to God and, and, and have no justice waiting for them when they die because Jesus Christ has already paid it. Proclaiming that message to people. Um, so I want us to see that, that a believer has a genuine heart for that. Um, and the reason why, I, and I know some of you guys are thinking, man, you have covered this like probably five or six different times in this series. This series has only been 16 weeks. Why are you doing that so much? Um, reason being, evangelism is one of the most lacking areas in the life of the modern church. Bar none. Like statistically speaking, the church feeds and clothes and houses more people in 2016 than we ever have in the history of the church. Right, 2,000 years of church history. We're doing more now for social justice than we ever have. And yet, we see seemingly, at least, um, church numbers dwindling. But that, again, gets into an argument versus the visible church and the invisible church. Um, 
Right. No one, as, as much help as we're giving people physically or tangibly, it seems like no one is telling anyone the gospel. Like, I'd, I'd be willing to, like, lay good bets down, and I'm not trying to do, like, a drive-by guilting, right, or anything like that, but I'd be willing to lay a bet down and, and say, if I went to ten people and asked them, did you explicitly share the gospel with anyone this week? I might get one or two people, right? Did you do this month? I, I might get three or four people. If we're going to be honest, that's, that's, that's the trend in, in, in most evangelical churches, that people aren't sharing their faith with unbelievers. Um, and I think that becomes from this modern cultural myth that we've bought into in America, or in the West in general, that our faith is to be private, right? And that's, that's false. I'm stealing from a preacher, Joe Thorne. Our, our faith is very personal, but biblically speaking, it's not to be private. You understand what I'm saying here? It's both personal and public, right? So don't buy into that myth. Um, but anyway, the pulse of the church is, the, is obedience to Jesus Christ. Um, and Jesus gives us the responsibility to proclaim his gospel, to proclaim good news to the world. So I'm, I'm hoping that by the end of this evening that we would have the resolve and the desire to fulfill the command from Jesus to tell the message of salvation to the world. That, that, that's what we're aiming at here, right? So just buckle in. Some of this is going to be a review, but until I can go to everyone in this church and ask them, hey, did you share the gospel with anyone? They're like, yeah, let me tell you, Tuesday. Until like, I can get that from like 10 out of 10, we're going to keep hammering this probably till I die. Um, so before I can get into the text, I don't want to drop you in. We're going to be in Acts chapter 26. If you want to turn there in your Bibles, I don't know if that's your, if that's your thing. It's going to be here on the projector. Um, again, if you're new here, take one of those blue Bibles home with you. It's in the backs of the pews. It's our gift to you. Uh, before we can hop into Acts chapter 26, we're actually reading all but two verses uh, in that chapter this evening. Uh, but I need to set the stage for you so you know what's going on. I hate dropping you guys in and you have no idea the context. Um, so Paul, right, the Apostle Paul, he, he has been arrested in the temple, or arrested, yeah, arrested in the temple and charged with defiling the temple. We see that in Acts chapter 21. Um, they're, they're saying that Paul has brought an uncircumcised um, Gentile into the inner court of the temple, the inner sanctuary, and he didn't do that. He hadn't done that. He's innocent of everything that they're throwing at him for his charges. Um, and he was taken to this Roman leader called a tribune, um, and the Roman leader in charge uh, was going to beat Paul, right, uh, for examination, right? Think like good cop, bad cop, like he's going to beat Paul down and try to question him and get some of the answers out of him that he wants. Um, so Paul, being a smart man, he says, hey, I'm a Roman citizen. You can't do this to me without a trial, Right? Because Paul wants to get some justice. He does, I mean, don't get me wrong. He's willing to suffer for the name of Christ, but he doesn't want to get punched in the face for no reason. Um, and what this does, whenever Paul reveals his Roman citizenship, this sets off multiple trials for Paul. Um, he's actually going to live the rest of his life in prison and then eventually be beheaded. Um, so this ends with years in prison, multiple trials for Paul. Right, but fast forward while Paul's in jail. So Paul's been arrested. He appeals to his Roman citizenship. Fast forward a couple of years. Um, and we see Paul has been transported from Jerusalem, where he is arrested, uh, to Caesarea. It's like 60-some miles outside of Jerusalem. Um, and the governor in charge of Caesarea, or that region, was a governor named Felix. Um, I always think of Felix the cat whenever I read the book of Acts, because I'm a loser. Um, but Felix, Felix is really shady, right? He's a horrible governor, and he keeps Paul in prison for two years, even though no one can prove any of the charges against Paul whatsoever. Right? He does this as a favor to the Jewish people who hated Paul. He wants to stay on their good side. So he keeps Paul in prison unjustly. And then eventually Felix gets fired 
Um, History tells us he was an incompetent governor. He was horrible. Um, And this dude named Festus takes his place, which is what I want to name my first son. Festus, that is phenomenal. What a U.S. Um, And and Festus wants to send Paul back to Jerusalem because that's what the Jews are asking Festus to do, is send Paul back to Jerusalem. But Paul knows if I go back to Jerusalem, they're going to kill me on the way there, right? So Paul, being really smart and, again, being Roman, he has this right to appeal to Caesar, which is like appealing to the Supreme Court. And if you're a Roman and you're in, you're in legal trouble and you appeal to Caesar, you ha- like they must bring you before Caesar at some point in time so that the emperor can hear your case himself, right? So Paul appeals to Caesar because he doesn't want to go back to Jerusalem and be murdered, and Governor Festus agrees that Paul should be sent to Caesar. So now here's the conundrum that Festus finds himself in. He has to write a letter to Caesar indicating the charges against Paul. But he doesn't know how. (laughs) Because Paul's innocent. And he doesn't understand the Jewish charges being brought against Paul. Because it has a lot to do with their religion. And Festus is totally ignorant to their religion. Um, So what Festus does is he gets a hold of this cat. Trust me, this is all going to make sense. You're going to be glad that I did this so you're not lost. Festus gets a hold of this king named King Agrippa. Um, And he says, Agrippa, I need you to help me out here to listen to Paul and try to formulate the charges against him so I can write this down and tell Caesar what's going on so Paul can have his trial in the future. Um, and the reason why he went to Agrippa was because Agrippa understands Jewish religion, right? He understands Judaism. He's familiar with the Old Testament. He actually publicly claims to believe uh, the things that the Old Testament teaches. So he's obviously better suited for this job than Festus. Now that you have all that in mind, now you know Agrippa's going to be there, Festus is going to be there, Paul's been in prison for a couple of years, you know why he's in prison. Now we can read the Bible, right? Acts 26, verses 1 through 29. Then Agrippa said to Paul, You may speak in your defense. So Paul, gesturing with his hand, started his defense. I am fortunate, King Agrippa, that you are the one hearing my defense today against all these accusations made by the Jewish leaders. For I know you are an expert on all Jewish customs and controversies. Now please listen to me patiently. As the Jewish leaders are well aware, I was given a thorough Jewish training from my earliest childhood among my own people and in Jerusalem. Uh, If they would admit it, they know that I have been a member of the Pharisees, the strictest sect of our religion. Now I am on trial because of my hope in the fulfillment of God's promise made to our ancestors. In fact, that is why the twelve tribes of Israel zealously worship God night and day, and they share the same hope I have. Yet, Your Majesty, they accuse me for having this hope. Why does it seem incredible to any of you that God can raise the dead? All right, just real quick, just to stop there before we go any further. Paul's just told us why he's been arrested. Again, Agrippa says, you can speak in your defense. And he says, within eight verses, he says, all right, guys, they're saying that I'm, I'm, I'm blaspheming and that I'm not actually a Jew, but I'm here to tell you, I have the same hope that the Jewish people have always had. I, I, I'm hoping and trusting in the promise that God gave the Jewish people back with our ancestors. This promise he, that he's alluding to is that God would send the Messiah and that the Messiah would reconcile God's people back to God and that the Messiah would have to suffer, and that the Messiah would have to die, and that the Messiah would be raised from the dead, because like David says in the psalm, God won't let his Holy One, his Messiah, his Christ, rot in the grave. He's saying, I'm a Jew, I'm not a blasphemer. I just believe and am trusting in this hope that all the Jewish people have always trusted in. And yet, your majesty, they accuse me for having this hope. 
then he says, why does it seem incredible to any of you that God can raise the dead? Because they were saying, well, Jesus has been crucified. He can't be the Messiah that you're claiming to hope in. And he says, well, you know, God's raised people from the dead in the Old Testament. Like, why is this so insane to you guys now that Jesus could be raised from the dead? So what Paul's pretty much just said within these first eight verses is, I'm on trial because I preach the good news about Jesus Christ. I'm on trial because I'm a Christian. Right? So I just want to make that clear because I understand that's, that's a little bit confusing. So he's claimed why he's on trial. And he said, I'm innocent of any charges of blasphemy that the Jews have said. I have the same hope that the Jewish people have always had. I just believe that Jesus is the fulfillment of that hope. Verse 9. I used to believe, right, so not, it, didn't, it wasn't always like this. He didn't always believe Jesus was the Messiah. I used to believe that I ought to do everything I could to oppose the very name of Jesus the Nazarene. Indeed, I did just that in Jerusalem. Authorized by the leading priest, I caused many believers there to be sent to prison. And I cast my vote against them when they were condemned to death. Many times I had them punished in the synagogues to get them to curse Jesus. I was so violently opposed to them that I even chased them down in foreign cities. And one day, I was on such a mission to Damascus, armed with the authority and commission of the leading priests. About noon, your majesty, as I was on the road, a light from heaven, brighter than the sun, shone down on me and my companions. And we all fell down, and I heard a voice saying to me in Aramaic, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? It is useless for you to fight against my will. Who are you, Lord, I asked. And the Lord replied, I am Jesus, the one you are persecuting. Now get to your feet, for I have appeared to you to appoint you as my servant and witness. Tell people that you have seen me and tell them what I will show you in the future. And I will rescue you from both your own people and the Gentiles. Yes, I am sending you to the Gentiles to open their eyes so they may turn from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God. Then they will receive forgiveness for their sins and be given a place among God's people who are set apart by faith in me. And so, King Agrippa, I obeyed that vision from heaven. I preached first to those in Damascus, then in Jerusalem and throughout all Judea, and also to the Gentiles that all must repent of their sins and turn to God and prove they have changed by the good things they do. Some Jews arrested me in the temple for preaching this, and they tried to kill me. But God has protected me right up to this present time, so I can testify to everyone from least to greatest. I teach nothing except what the prophets and Moses said would happen. That the Messiah would, be, would suffer and be the first to rise from the dead. And in this way, announce God's light to Jews and Gentiles alike. Suddenly, Festus shouted, Paul, you are insane. Too much study has made you crazy. But Paul replied, I am not insane, most excellent Festus. What I am saying is the sober truth. And King Agrippa knows about these things. I speak boldly, for I am sure these events are all familiar to him, for they were not done in a corner. King Agrippa, do you believe the prophets? I know you do. And Agrippa interrupted him. Do you think you can persuade me to become a Christian so quickly? Paul replied, whether quickly or not, I pray to God that both you and everyone in here in this audience might become the same as I am, except for these chains. Let's take a second and pray. Father, please, by the working of your Holy Spirit with the word, make these truths real to us. Let the scriptures speak to us. Let me clearly expose the meaning of the scriptures. Let us learn from Paul's example as you were working through him. Father, call someone to be made alive in Christ this evening if people here don't know you. 
Soften those who already believe. Soften our hearts so that we would obey your word. Father, if you don't work your will, then this is all for nothing. So please do something. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, so I know I just read a lot, right? I just read a lot. So you're going to be glad we're not doing like a verse-by-verse breakdown of this whole thing. That could take weeks. That's not what we're doing, right? So take heart, right? Don't freak out. Kind of distill all this down. This is what I see from this passage, right? Paul took every opportunity that he had to proclaim Christ to all, everywhere he was, at all times, from the least to the greatest, like he said, right? From the richest to the poorest. He would proclaim the gospel boldly to a king. He would proclaim the gospel boldly to a servant, or to, like, to, go, to a peasant, right? He didn't care. Everyone, all the time, he wants to proclaim Jesus' lordship, um, Jesus being the Messiah. He wants to talk about the life, death, and resurrection of Christ all the time, right? And the, the reason why I say this, just consider this from this passage that we just read. All Paul had to do during this little trial, right, during this hearing, all he had to do was declare his innocence and what he was innocent from. That's all that King Agrippa was there to do. All right, let's formulate the charges against Paul. Paul, what's your defense? Man, like, why are you here? Are you innocent? That's all that Paul had to do. Claim his innocence, tell why he's innocent. But what does Paul do? By the way, Paul did that. The reason why I stopped midway through reading those verses Paul, Paul did exa- all that he actually had to do within the first eight verses out of the 29 that we read. But what did Paul do? He made the most of every single opportunity that he had. He went on to give a witness and proclaim the gospel to the governor and the king and all these other nobles who were, who were surrounded there. We didn't get to read that part. There was a ton of people there, right? a lot of nobles. He said, okay, i got an opportunity here, lots of people that I normally wouldn't have contact with. I'm proclaiming the gospel to them. Paul was obsessed with talking about Jesus. He was obsessed with proclaiming Christ. Every opportunity that he had, he took it. Right? We talked about this in weeks before. Paul was jailed. Paul was beaten. He was shipwrecked. He was under the threat of death. He was going to live the rest of his life in prison. Um, he didn't care. Right? He says, every moment, my life is worthless if I do not fulfill the mission that Jesus gave me to proclaim him to everyone. Paul didn't care the cost. He didn't care where he was. He had a mission to accomplish. So bear that in mind, his obsession, his commitment to proclaiming the gospel of Jesus Christ. Keep that in mind, right? Because from this text, I want us to see three things. All right, one, why was Paul so committed to this mission? Why, why was he so committed? Two, how Paul went about this calling, right? How, how did he go about obeying this calling from Jesus? Third, I want to see what pushed Paul to continue on faithfully, right? And the reasons why I want to consider the why, how, and what um, is because Paul's reasons should be our reasons too because we're Christians just like Paul. And the way that he did things, being an apostle, should be the way that we do things too, right? So we're looking at the why, how, and what. So why was Paul so committed to proclaiming Christ? First one's the easiest one, ladies and gentlemen. Jesus saved Paul. Jesus saved Paul. Why was he committed? Jesus Christ saved Paul. In verses 9 through 18, Paul gives this testimony. Right? He launches in, yeah, I'm a Christian. It wasn't always that way. Right? And he tells his own story from his own mouth. He's in open rebellion against Jesus Christ. Right? He's blaspheming Jesus. He's persecuting Jesus' followers. He's killing Christians. He's voting to have them killed. He's jailing them. He's beating them in, in the synagogues trying to get them to blaspheme the name of Jesus Christ. He's sinning against God. 
Jesus is the Son of God. He is sinning against the Godhead. Open rebellion against Jesus. And then he says in one instant, right, a light brighter, the ESV says, brighter than the noonday sun shone around Paul and the people that were with him. And Jesus knocks him off of his horse that he was on. And Jesus spoke to him. I saw, saw, why are you persecuting me? He says, who are you, Lord? I'm Jesus. And in that instant, that, that Jesus appeared to Paul and spoke to Paul and told him who he was, I think everything clicked for Paul. I, I, I believe the scripture would tell us that he was immediately converted. He hears the voice of Jesus. He sees Jesus appearing in front of him. And all of a sudden he says, oh, Jesus is risen from the dead. He's not dead like I thought that he was. He is the Messiah. He is everything that he claimed to be. He's everything that his people claimed that he was. He's everything that the Old Testament and Isaiah and all the other prophets said that the Christ would be. Jesus is all of those things. I need him. Why does Paul need him? Because he realized he's been sinning against the chosen Holy One of God who has been sent to redeem God's people. I need him now. I need his forgiveness. I believe that he is everything that he ever claimed that he was. And he was converted. He believed the gospel. He devoted himself to submitting to Jesus as Lord. Notice he calls him Lord in that passage. Now, we may not have had the same physical experience that Paul did, right? I don't know about you guys and have been blinded by the sun or heard the audible voice of Jesus. If you have, please come talk to me because that's got to be a rad story, right? That's, this has not been, uh, it's not been my experience or any of yours experience, I would imagine. Um, we may have not had the exact same physical experience that Paul did, but spiritually, Jesus did the same thing for us. What I mean by that is, and I'm not saying that this is necessarily you can, you can point to a day uh, or a time specifically, because I know a lot of Christians who don't know exactly when they were converted. But I will say this. They can all say, I used to not believe. And then at some point in time, I believe that he's the Messiah. I believe that I need him, right? Like in, in one moment, in our hearts, Jesus Christ caused the light of the gospel to shine on us, right? Like Paul says in 2 Corinthians, Right, that the one who spoke, let there be light in Genesis, said, let there be light in our hearts. And the veil that was keeping us from believing the gospel and keeping us from believing that we need salvation through Jesus, that was keeping us from believing that we're sinners deserving of hell, it was removed in one instance whenever Jesus Christ spoke. So in the same way that Jesus said, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? He did the exact same thing for us. He caused us. God caused us to be made alive in Christ. And I don't know how to make that real for you guys. To really think about everything that Paul was, we were. If you're a Christian, if you're not a Christian, everything that Paul was, you are. A blasphemer. A sinner who's been sinning against God and his Messiah. Who deserves hell. I don't know how to, I don't know how to make that real. I, I think it serves Christians well to think about who we once were and how far away we were from God until he said, let there be light in your heart. See my Christ. Find me supreme. Submit to me. And we did. Paul never forgot. Paul never forgot. He talks, he's talked about it three times in Acts. Three different times in Acts. He talks about it in his letters. He never forgot where he was before Jesus Christ claimed him as his own. 
We ought not either. Right? And because Paul never forgot, Paul had this like continuous gratitude for Jesus that he could not contain. Where he says, Christ is supreme, right? And he loves me when he actually shouldn't, because I'm, I'm wicked. And because he loves me, because he's shown this grace, honoring Jesus is now more important to me than anything in this life because he actually gave me true life. So now Jesus is worthy of all that I can give and more. What I'm saying is Jesus was saved, or Paul, Jesus was saved. Paul was saved by Jesus. Yeah, that was almost heresy, huh? Yeah, thank you, podcasters. Um, <laughs> right? Paul was saved by Jesus, and now he has this unyielding gratitude to Christ. So that's one. What's another reason why Paul was so committed to this? So Jesus saved Paul, and then Jesus immediately commissioned Paul. Right? Verses 16 through 18. I'm going to read them again. Jesus says, Now get to your feet, for I have appeared to you, not only to save you, but to appoint you as my servant and witness. Tell people that you have seen me, and tell them what I will show you in the future. And I will rescue you from both your own people and the Gentiles. Yes, I am sending you to the Gentiles to open their eyes so they may turn from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God. Then they will receive forgiveness for their sins and be given a place among God's people who are set apart by faith in me. After Paul converts, Jesus says, get to your feet. Now, if you're not familiar with the Old Testament prophets, that is sending language that God in the Old Testament would use for his prophets. Get on your feet. Go. I'm sending you somewhere. So Paul, just like these Old Testament prophets, has been appointed by Jesus to proclaim something. That's what prophets do. They proclaim stuff. He's been appointed by Jesus to be a witness to the world and to go and open their eyes, which we're going to get into later. But he says, Paul, you're to go and proclaim that I am risen from the dead so that their eyes would be opened, and that they could turn from their sin, turn from the power of Satan to God, repent of their sins, and then receive forgiveness and a place among God's people through faith in Jesus. So Paul's told to go open their eyes, and that becomes the mission of Paul's life now, to go proclaim the risen Lord Jesus to the world. Now, if you've been in church very long, you can see Jesus has already given us the, the same job, essentially, Right? We have the Great Commission at the last chapter of the Gospel of Matthew. In Acts 1.8, Jesus says, like, go, I'm sending you as my witnesses to the world. These are general commands for all believers. But I'd like to notice the difference between uh, what we do and, and what Paul did. Right? I'm stealing this straight up from Francis Chan. So if you guys like Francis Chan, just bear with me here because he's a way better preacher than me. All right? Um, Chan said this thing. I saw it online, and, and I thought it, was, it was really good. Um, he says, hey, Jesus says, like, Go be my witnesses throughout the world. And Jesus says, go uh, make disciples of all nations. And we go, gotcha. I memorized that. <laughs> right? Like, we'll memorize it. And some cats will say, you know, I memorized that in Greek. Right? Oh, that was a pretty funny joke. Whatever. Um, right? But Jesus makes a command. And what we tend to do in the 21st century church is memorize the command of Christ instead of actually going and doing it. Right? And in that little thing, Francis Chan was saying, he was like, if I tell my daughter to go clean her room, and then two hours later I go talk to her and say, well, how'd it go? She's like, I remember every word you said. <laughs> I didn't clean my room. Right? He's like, does that please me as her father? Absolutely not. She's like, she has like, yeah, Dad, me and my friends had a Bible study come over, and like, we talked about what the house would look like if I cleaned my room. <laughs> you know what I mean? And th- but that's what we tend to do with the Great Commission. 
seriously, that, that, is, that is what we tend to do with the Great Commission. We'll talk about, man, what would the world look like if we actually began to go make disciples of the nations and actually went and became Jesus' witness throughout the world? We talk about it. Right? And, and, and it's, it's awesome to talk about it. It's awesome to think about it. But So we tend to do that. We'll memorize it. We might memorize it in the original biblical language. We'll have Bible studies about what life would be like if we would actually do that. But check out what Paul does. In verse 19, Paul says, I did not disobey the heavenly vision. I began preaching in Damascus. He tells us in verses 9 through 18, he was converted on the road to Damascus. Then he gets to Damascus and starts preaching the gospel. He says, it starts today. It starts now. We begin to do this immediately. Jesus commands it and Paul says, I will do it as soon as possible. He wastes, he wastes no time. So Paul, with gratitude from a changed heart, from the mercy of God poured out over him, he, he begins to see Jesus as Lord, which we talked about last week, that Jesus is to be obeyed. And then he begins to go and do as Jesus Christ says. Now, I won't, I won't labor this next point, but our salvation and the gratitude we should have from that, and by the way, if you have no gratitude towards Christ, and I, I don't think you're saved, um, but our salvation and, and commission from Jesus should be enough to make us begin obeying him. But Jesus Christ is gracious beyond measure. He gives us more reason. In verse 17, Jesus Christ gave Paul a promise that I think applies to us as well. He says, and I will rescue you from both your own people and the Gentiles. Now, rescue clearly doesn't mean that Paul won't suffer, right? Paul's in prison, he's been beaten, shipwrecked, all that stuff. Rescue doesn't mean that. But what what Jesus is saying, I will rescue you from your own people and from the Gentiles. He says, I will keep my hand over you and see to it that you live until your work is completed. Paul, I'm sending you out. It's going to get rough, but I will not let you die until you have completed everything that I've said you should. Think about the encouragement that that is. Right? This, this promise of the sovereignty of God. That we're told, we will continue to soldier on until the work is done. That we will not be called home to be with Jesus Christ in heaven for all of eternity. We will not, that won't happen until we're finished with everything that Jesus Christ has said that we must fulfill. Right, Ephesians chapter 2 says that God has predestined us to salvation and also predestined us for the good works that we have to do, which means that there would be a finite number of good works that every person is meant to do. We're going to complete them because whatever God predestines must happen. So he says, I will rescue you. He's promising you will not fail. You can do this. You won't fail. I think that's what pushed Paul to soldier on faithfully because he says, if I die, then I'm finished. God has said, come home. God's with me. I can't fail. If I live, apparently there's more stuff for me to do. But I can continue on with this trust. So in that, I think God is promising to be Paul's helper. Right? Because God's will is infallible, he says, I will see to it that you do what I want you to do, Paul. He promises to be a helper. And what's really cool from this passage is we see God is always faithful to his promise. He promised the Messiah to the Jewish people. Paul says, well, I've seen the fulfillment of that in Christ. So Paul says, I can trust him on all of his other promises, which would be lesser than sending the Messiah. 
All God wants from us is an obedient heart on these things. He doesn't tell us to do it alone. He says, are you willing to go because I will empower you to complete the mission that I lay before you? So in light of that, we can fulfill this commission. We can be faithful to open their eyes, whatever that means that we're going to get into later. All right, so we've seen the why. All right, so we've seen the why that Paul was committed to proclaim Christ. Right? We saw he was saved, so he had gratitude. He was commissioned, and he uh, humbly accepted the lordship of Christ. He was promised help from Jesus, so he was encouraged. So there's the why Paul was committed. So how then? Did Paul go about completing this mission to open their eyes? If you think about it, Jesus told Paul to open their eyes so people would turn, receive forgiveness, given a place among God's people. That's like a really tall order, right? That's like a, that's a, that's like a somber, like sobering command that Paul was given. Go open their eyes. So how's Paul going to do it? It's really counterintuitive what he does. He doesn't do some like lame... Uh, tactical program, right? He doesn't do a seeker-sensitive kind of thing to just try to just bogus. Never mind, I'm getting off on a tangent. Let's see what Paul actually does. Verses 20, 22, and 23. This is what he says. I preached first to those in Damascus, then in Jerusalem and throughout all Judea, and also to the Gentiles, that all must repent of their sins and turn to God, and prove they have changed by the good things they do. So let's, let's cut the middle man out on that verse. I preached that all must repent of their sins and turn to God and prove that they have changed by the good things that they do. What else does he say? Verse 22 and 23. So in preaching, he says, I teach nothing except what the prophets and Moses said would happen, that the Messiah would suffer and be the first to rise from the dead, and in this way announce God's light to Jews and Gentiles alike. That's what Paul did. It's crazy. You think, okay, I'm supposed to go open their eyes. So like, what do I need to do? Like a brainwashing program? Do I need to like make everything seem like happy for them? No. He says, I plainly proclaimed the gospel itself. And some people would say, man, can't you give me something a little more, more practical than that? Right? This is literally the most practical thing that we can do. Just laying that out there. You want to see someone saved? Tell them the gospel. Paul says in his letters, the gospel is the power of God. It seems like foolishness to some people. It's a stumbling block to other people. But for those who are being saved, this is the power of God. This is the most practical thing we can do. Just a quick way to remember the gospel. Right? It's God, man, Christ, response, receive. So what did Paul proclaim to these people? He says, there is a God who is creator of all things. He is holy. He is different from us completely. He is 100% righteous. He despises sin, and he is a good judge. And then this God, in his infinite wisdom, created man. And he gives man commands. And man sins. Man disobeys, openly rebels against those commands, and thereby incurs the just wrath of God against them. They deserve to go to hell. They've sinned against this holy God who's only ever been good and will only ever be good. They've spat in his face and said they want to be their own gods and they want to do what they want to do. They don't want to obey him. But then God, in his mercy beyond measure, sends Jesus to be a substitute for these wicked sinners. 
to live a perfectly righteous life in the place of these wicked sinners and suffer the punishment that they deserve on a cross and then be raised from the dead so that they can know through faith in him they will be raised from the dead as well and never have to suffer God's wrath because God is just and Jesus has already paid what they deserve for their sin. And then he calls them to repent. He says, believe this message. Repent. Turn from your sin. Turn towards God. Believe in His Christ. Submit to the Lordship of Jesus. Turn from your sin. Turn turn towards faith and righteous living. And if you'll do that, then you'll receive forgiveness. God will blot your sins out. Past, present, and future. You'll be given a place among God's people. You who formerly had no place among God's people will be given a place by faith in Jesus. Paul plainly and boldly spoke the truth about God's holiness. He did not back down from the fact that God is righteous and despises sin and will by no means clear the guilty. He didn't back down from man's sin. He didn't didn't buy into any kind of cultural lie, which actually this is just fairly new in our culture, that people are mostly good. Bull. That's not what the Bible teaches. People suck. People sin. People offend a holy God who despises sin and does not deserve to be sinned against. Therefore, man deserves hell. Paul didn't shy away from those doctrines. That there is a real hell and it is eternal. It is an eternal conscious torment for all of those who do not put their faith in Christ. He didn't back down from that. And he didn't back down from the fact that Jesus Christ is the only way that anyone will be spared from hell. Because God is just and holy and righteous. He didn't try to like, modify that message so that it would be more palatable. He didn't try to to downplay the holiness of God so that people who don't believe and are living in sin and living wicked lives could could think that they could approach this God. He He didn't dumb it down. He says the only way to approach this holy God is through faith in Jesus. If you don't have a mediator, you're done. And Jesus Christ is the only mediator between God and man. He backed down from none of this. But another thing that I thought was interesting, so as bold as Paul is, bear in mind, he's talking to a governor and a king right now, right? Like This could go really badly for Paul. So as bold as Paul is being, saying things that probably offend their sensibilities, Paul stayed winsome with these people, right? He stayed respectful. He had a winning character about him, right? And the reason why I can say that um, is think about Festus, right? Festus interrupts Paul. Paul, you're out of your mind, Right? <laughs> Like, you are insane. You, you, I get that you're, you seem pretty well-educated, Paul. Like, you're speaking like a fairly smart person, but you have absolutely lost your mind. How does Paul respond to being mocked for preaching this gospel? He says, most excellent Festus. I'm not insane. What I'm telling you is the sober truth. Notice that Paul doesn't respond with evil whenever he's mocked and persecuted for preaching the gospel, because he knows if I respond hatefully back to Festus, this brings reproach upon Jesus. This makes Jesus look bad. Paul definitely responds. He doesn't just take it on the chin, but he responds in grace. And I I know I have a hard time doing that whenever I'm talking to people about Jesus, and and they'll ridicule me, or uh, 
talk about how stupid Christianity is. Or I can't believe you believe in a book that's 2,000 years old. And I'm like, actually, it's like 6,000 years old, but, you know, whatever. Um, <laughs> right, parts of it, at least. Right, I want to smart off back to them really badly. But here, Paul, said, Paul didn't do that, did he? He says, most excellent Festus, respectful, winsome towards them. That was the second thing that I see Paul doing. So he's boldly proclaiming the gospel. He stays winsome and respectful. What else did he do? He was intentional with them, with those who heard him. He says, okay, Festus isn't hearing me anymore, but Agrippa's listening. And he becomes intentional with them. What do I mean by intentional? He speaks directly to Agrippa, the king, boldly. He knows Agrippa isn't a believer. Straight to Agrippa. And what does he do? He calls him to repent. He calls him to faith in Jesus. The reason why I can say that is he says, Agrippa, so he's made this argument from the Old Testament, and then he says, Agrippa, don't you believe what the Old Testament teaches? Because I've heard you proclaim that, and he knows if Agrippa says that he believes what the Old Testament says, then he's got Agrippa on a lock. Then it says, so you must repent and believe that Jesus Christ is the Messiah. Right? And Agrippa can feel that. So Paul intentionally calls for repentance from Agrippa, intentionally calls for faith from Agrippa. So while being plain and respectful, he actually goes on the offensive during his defensive trial. Something that I think is interesting about being intentional is Paul didn't just let the gospel be another interesting concept among many. Anyone else guilty of that? I've done that whenever telling people about Jesus. I'm like, yeah, like this is what we believe. Instead of like what Paul said to Festus, this is sober truth. These are historical facts. There is a God, there is wrath, Jesus is his Messiah, Jesus was raised from the dead. Turn to him. He didn't just let this be an ethereal concept, right? He called for a response. And why did he do that? Because this isn't just another concept. This isn't just one true religion among many true religions. This is life and death. It needs a response because apart from faith in Christ, he knows Agrippa and all these other pagans around me will perish. Now, how many of us have friends and family that we have never been intentional with? I can think of a couple in my family, and I'm I'm ashamed to say that. I I just want to let you know, like, I'm not up here pointing a finger at everyone else. How many people, friends and family, that we've never explicitly talked to them about Jesus? That we in our hearts know that they're perishing. We know only the gospel can save them. We do nothing. We won't call our aunts. We won't call our uncles. We won't sit down with our grandparents. We won't sit down with our best friends and say, I need to tell you this sober truth because unless you repent, you will perish. Those people may know that we're believers and they're probably cool with just letting it stay there. Paul refused for that kind of things to be a reality for him. If they don't know I'm a Christian, they're going to know today. And if they already know that I'm a Christian, then I am going to go and intentionally call them to repentance because I don't want them to go to hell. Paul had been commissioned by Jesus to go. And the last thing I see, and I just wrote this down before I got up here, Paul prayed for them. He says, I pray to God that both you, Agrippa, and everyone here in this audience would become as I am. 
He prayed for them. We can proclaim the gospel all we want, but how much do we really care about someone's salvation if we won't pray for them? We must pray for the unsaved. But then here's the real question. Here's the real question for me, all right? So we've looked at the why and the how and all that stuff, and this has been cool. How is that opening eyes? How is this opening their eyes? Because that's what Jesus told Paul to go and do. Paul, go open their eyes so that they would turn to God and turn away from Satan and, and receive forgiveness of sins through faith in Jesus. The reason why I ask this is because Paul proclaimed the gospel boldly and plainly and winsomely and intentionally, and he prayed for this people, and no one converted. Not one single person. Actually, history would tell us that Agrippa himself died an unbeliever. It would seem that Paul has failed miserably in his work because no one's eyes were open. But really, whether or not Paul failed depends on what open their eyes means. If it means convert the people, then Paul failed miserably. Actually, I would argue Paul failed miserably most of the time, if that's what that means. All of the apostles did. If open their eyes means see that they convert, then they failed miserably in the commission of Christ, which would make Christ a liar. Like he said, I will help you. I will see through it. I will see to it that you fulfill this commission. We know that it can't mean convert people. Right? Jonah, like the little book in the Old Testament, Salvation is of the Lord, not of Paul, not of David, not of anyone else in this room. Salvation is of the Lord. Paul tells us in Ephesians, God made you alive with Christ, so God's the one who does the converting then. God converts. Ephesians tells us God is the one who gives the gift of faith. John 3 tells us that God sends forth His Holy Spirit to cause people to be born again. Not an act of our will, not through... um, the browbeating of another person, but God is the one who calls people to saving faith effectually. Paul knows this. So what is Paul commissioned to do? Open their eyes. Paul's commissioned to be faithful to proclaiming the message. Right? Like, think about it this way. Paul is called by Jesus to bring food to the table as a waiter, but he, Paul is not called to make the people hungry. Paul doesn't have that kind of a power. That's a power that rests in God. Jesus says, Paul, bring the food to the table like a waiter. I'll make them hungry. So open their eyes means this, plainly telling people around us that everything is futile except for faith in Jesus. And Paul did that faithfully. And we can do that faithfully. Right? Something that I I have to keep in mind. I was talking with Nick about this kind of stuff. Uh, earlier this week, like, I will, I will go insane if I don't keep in mind that Jesus has called me to be faithful, not to make results. I can be faithful. I can tell people the gospel. I can't open anyone's eyes in a saving way. That power rests with God and God alone, so he's not calling us to do what is only responsible for God to do. So Paul continuously pushed forward in this commission from Jesus. Why? What made Paul want to continue this? Even if people rejected him, even if he's jailed, even if he's beaten, even if he's going to be martyred for the faith. 
what made him go? It's really simple. He had tasted the sweetness of knowing Jesus. The Bible tells us, taste and see that the Lord is good. And Paul had done that. He had been called out of his sin and called into saving faith. He's now in relationship with Jesus. He wants this for everyone now. I know the goodness of God found in Christ. I want this for every person that I come into contact with. This calls to mind a couple of quotes from Charles Spurgeon. Some of you guys may have heard. He says, have you no wish for others to be saved? Then you are not saved yourself. Be sure of that. Another one. I will not believe that you have tasted the honey of the gospel if you can eat it all by yourself. How could we not want others to taste the joy in knowing God through Christ? How could we not want others to experience the peace of knowing that my debt that I owed God has been settled? How could we not want people to experience the freedom of knowing that I am no longer under the bondage of the law and its demands and and its guilt that, that comes? How could we not want people to experience the forgiveness and love that is in Christ? You know, like I, I thought of this. I'm not that great with analogies. <laughs> you can't tell. Whenever we're eating dinner, right? Like if we're at a party, right? Family, friends, strangers, whatever. If you're eating at a party and you have something like your favorite food is there and you're like one of the only people that's ever had it, what do you do? Dude, try this. <laughs> Dude, that looks gross. Dude, shut up and eat it, right? Like that becomes like the argument that like you start to have with people. If you're like me and you're real aggressive, you'll like take that food and you're trying to like shove it in people's mouths, right? <laughs> like maybe you won't get like totally aggressive and like try to pry their jaws open or anything like that. Not good, you'll get bit. Um, but like you'll put it like right up to their lips. You're like, Stephen's laughing because I do this to Stephen like every time we hang out. <laughs> um, but yeah, like that's what you do, right? Why is that? Because this is delicious. I've eaten this. I've tasted. I want you to come into the joy of how good that this food is. That's what we do whenever we truly know Jesus. Paul had said, this is good. Would you taste and see as I have tasted and seen? But not only that, not only does Paul want other people to experience this joy and peace that he has, Paul pushes on faithfully for the glory of Christ. Right, this, this got me thinking about this. Paul didn't just keep pushing on in evangelism only because he doesn't want people to go to hell. That's a good motivation. That's great. Uh, whenever I, my aunt is an unbeliever, I think of that all the time whenever I think of my aunt. Is I don't want my aunt to go to hell, so I need to talk to her. I need to tell her the gospel. That's a great motivation to have. That's not Paul's primary motivation. That, that shouldn't be our prim, primary motivation either. What drove Paul is he says, I want God to be magnified in my own life. I want the world to see what he's worth to me. So I think Paul can say, even if no one ever converts and everyone I ever see goes to hell for eternity, I will continue to preach the gospel because God is worthy of my obedience. And it brings him glory whenever his people obey him. God is worthy. 
He's the creator. He's the sustainer. He's the redeemer of his people. He is eternal. He is merciful. He is gracious. He is the fountainhead from which all good things spring from. He's worthy of everything. Even if we never see one single result to the glory of Christ, we obey. So to sum this whole series up, Paul had one goal. To glorify God by proclaiming Christ. And this has to become us. We've been saved. We've been commissioned. We've been given the same promises that Paul has been get, that Paul was given. We know the same gospel that Paul preached because it's the gospel that we believe for our salvation. Now it's time for us to boldly proclaim it and be intentional. And I'm convinced that we can do this work with the confidence of knowing that the fruit of our labor is in the hands of a sovereign God. We cannot fail. He does not demand results from us. He demands obedience. If we truly have gratitude for the salvation that he's given us that we did not deserve completely by grace, then we'll obey. By God's grace, we're going to be faithful to the calling. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for giving us godly examples like Paul. Thank you for saving us. Thank you for giving us a commission. Thank you for empowering us to obey everything that you command. Holy Spirit, please do something in our hearts that we wouldn't be able to sleep if we're not proclaiming the gospel. Like whip conviction on us something awful if we take opportunity or if we don't take the opportunities that you give us to tell people about Jesus. God and and Father, just help us to do all of these things to the glory of Christ. Saying that He is worthy. Even if we don't ever see one single conversion, that we will continue to soldier on because this is what brings you glory. Give us a boldness. Give us a zeal. Give us a passion. Give us clarity. Give us the opportunity and give us the backbone to actually go out and make the opportunity. Pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.